Well, as you know, over the past three Sundays, we have been looking at snapshots from the early Acts Church. Two weeks ago, the good Reverend Winkle took us through a message that helped us understand the power that comes through waiting on the Holy Spirit. And then last week, Pastor Mary took us through the story of Peter and John as they began to speak and heal in the name of the resurrected Christ. And then the power struggle that began to ensue as the religious authorities did everything they could to shut Peter and John up already. Well, our text today picks up right there. So turn with me now in your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the TNIV, and I think that's slightly different than what you've got. But turn with me to page 888, Acts 4, verses 23 to 37. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. So as you see, we have two main sections here tonight. A story of the believers praying and speaking boldly, and then the follow-up act of the believers sharing generously their possessions. And the key to understanding the power in this prayer from the first section of the text, comes not in the fact that they prayed, but what they prayed. And if you look in your text, you'll see that the first part of their prayer, or I'm sorry, the middle section of their prayer is actually a quote. And that quote comes from Psalm 2. 
Now, whenever a New Testament figure quotes the Old Testament, it means pay attention. And especially when a New Testament person quotes a psalm, it's often short speak or shorthand for I don't have time nor energy nor space in this moment to give you the whole psalm, but read it. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, this would be the best example of it. He would have known that any good Jew listening to him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Admittedly, one of the lowest points in the biblical story. He would have known that any Jew listening would have heard that as, go back and read Psalm 22, because that's what I'm actually trying to tell you right now. So if you look in Psalm 22, and I'm just going to flip to it here briefly, it does begin, admittedly, quite low. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? But listen to the turn it takes by the time you get to the end. And picture Jesus on that cross saying this. And I'm going to go ahead and insert his name. Starting at about mm, 27. All of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, me, Jesus. And the families of all the nations will bow down before me. For the dominion belongs to me, and I rule over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and will worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before me, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve me. Future generations will be told about me, and they will proclaim my righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, I have done it. Well, we see the same kind of turn in this psalm, too, that's being quoted by the apostles in their prayer. It begins, why do the nations rage? And it seems like this hand-wringing, oh God, why do people conspire against you? But when you turn to Psalm 2, and we are doing a bit of flipping around here, it begins, why do the nations, or in your, your text, why do the Gentiles conspire but in verse 4, we see that it's more of a rhetorical question. Like, why in the world would they bother to conspire? Because the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at anyone who thinks they have the authority over the ultimate authority, which is Jesus Christ. The psalm goes on into a dialogue almost between the Lord and his anointed one, Jesus. By the time we get to verse 8, this, this God says, ask me, God, and I will make the nations your inheritance, Jesus. The ends of the earth, Jesus, are going to end up being your possessions. So in this power struggle, this question between the Sanhedrin, the, the, temple, the temple authorities, this struggle between the, the, the government, between Caesar and this new fledgling little church about who's really in charge, who's got the authority, the apostles make no bone about the fact that they actually serve the living God, the risen king, the one who is in charge, who's in the end going to get all the land. The deal is, they're not the only ones with authorities breathing down their necks, telling them to shut up already about the gospel, are they? Because when we try to speak of it, when we try to speak and witness and testify to the fact that Jesus has risen and that that makes a difference in our real lives, we hear voices too sneering at us, except they're not from religious authorities. They typically come from in our side, inside our own heads, right? I mean, you hear them. You try to speak about Jesus, and then you think about it. <laughs> How dare I speak about Jesus, about the power of the resurrection in my life when I've got this addiction to porn, to food, to the next trip to the mall. How dare I speak about Jesus when 
struggling with this battle and it seems like I'm losing against depression, against this eating disorder. How dare you speak about the resurrected Christ? I mean, look around. Haiti, how dare you believe in a God, much less say he's actually in charge of things. And if it's not the world around you, the realities that you see in your eyes saying, shut up already about the gospel, well then it's the voice of our pluralist society that says, how dare you say you serve the one, only, true, living God. And in the face of these kind of sneering voices that mock you as you try to speak about the power of Jesus in this kind of life, there's only one thing to do. And that's what the apostles did, which is drop to their knees and speak the truth about the one who actually is in charge, who is going to inherit the ends of the earth. And the one who's giving him that inheritance is the one that created it all in the first place. As you look around and you see things like death, which we've seen a lot of lately, and decay, broken bodies, destruction, corruption, You need to hear again this gospel that one day the risen God will take everything in your life that's broken and he's going to piece it back together and it will be whole. One day everything that is sick shall be healed. One day everything that is corrupt will be made right and everything that's crooked is going to be made straight again. And even those that die, and I have to say I just came here from my grandfather's uh, visitation and I saw his dead body laying there in front of me. And this is crazy talk, but one day he's going to rise from the grave to feast with all of us at this meal where Jesus will host and feast with us. And life will be more real and more rich and more full and beautiful than anything we have yet to taste. After the disciples prayed this prayer, they were able through the filling and the moving of the Holy Spirit to speak with boldness about the reality of who was in charge. But now everything we've talked about so far, praying, knowing, speaking boldly, that's all stuff that happens from the neck up, right? That's head kind of faith. And we here at Calvin pride ourselves in being more holistic than that, right? When we talk about it being this integrated thing. And to that I say amen. But this group of apostles reminds us that while living your faith out of these heady places from the neck up isn't everything, it's also not nothing. But speaking boldly, praying and knowing with certainty, for some of you, that's not actually your thing. For some of you in this room, it's not easier said than done. You rather do the gospel any day than speak about it. And the reality is, is you're not alone because you come from a generation that, for whom speaking boldly and with certainty about anything, and especially when it comes to authority, is just not cool. In fact, it's no longer socially acceptable. Knowing what you think and speaking about it well is actually passé. Listen to what one of my favorite slam poets in Chicago says about this very thing. In his poem, he writes, In case you hadn't noticed, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about or believe strongly in what you're saying. Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows have been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences, even when those questions aren't, even when those sentences aren't like, 
questions, you know? Declarative sentences, so-called because they used to, like, declare things to be true, as opposed to other things which were, like, not, have been infected by a totally hip and tragically interrogative tone, you know? Like, don't just think I'm uncool because I've noticed this. This is just like the word on the street, you know? It's like what I've heard. I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions, okay? I'm just inviting you into my own uncertainty, you know? What has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been like, chopped down with the rest of the rainforest? <laughs> Or do we have, like, nothing to say? Has our society become so, like, totally, I mean, absolutely, you know, <laughs> that we've just gotten to the point where it's like, whatever? And so actually, Our disarticulationness <laughs> is just this clever sort of thing to disguise the fact that we've become the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since, you know, a long, long time ago. I entreat you. I implore you. I challenge you to speak with conviction to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you believe it. Because contrary to the wisdom of the bumper sticker, it's not enough these days to simply question authority. You've got to speak with it, too. So speaking boldly about the things that you've worked hard to know, that takes will. That takes practice and effort and focus. And it's not something that's socially smiled upon anymore. But what the apostles and Luke, as he wrote his gospel, wanted us to understand is that knowing and speaking about what resurrection means in your life unleashes this graceful power of the Holy Spirit in your life and into your speech. Before we move on, one final caveat. Let's collectively agree right now that speaking boldly about the resurrection is not an invitation to offend people with unthoughtful arrogance. Yes, you're going to tick off people in power. You can expect that kind of threat. But as your friends suffer through grief and through doubt, this is not a free pass to carelessly barrel over sensitive pastoral moments. Remember the difference between boldness and arrogance. As we look at this next section of the text about sharing the possessions, I need to confess to you that the first thing that I had to do to see anything in this passage was get past what it didn't say. Because I read it and I thought, oh no, here's another one of these texts where I'm going to be asked to get rid of everything I own and I know it, everybody's going to end up wanting. And that's so wild because that is the exact opposite of what the text actually says. It says that from time to time, believers took the things they had, an extra field, an extra home, and they sold these possessions, and they took the extra money, and they laid it at the feet of the apostles, and everybody had what they needed. Nobody was left wanting. 
So just hear that, because a lot of times when we come to a text with privilege, it blocks our ability to hear because we come fearing. But that's anything um, but what we need to do. So what does it say? It says that the people sold their goods, they shared their possessions, and that people were left without need. But I, for one, know that this is a lot easier. This is one of those cases where it is easier talked about than done. So why did the early church bother to share their stuff, learn to release their grip on their possessions? The first thing I would say is it was practical. There was a new king in town, and it was urgent that word got out. So realistically, they needed to pool their resources and do what they needed to do to as quickly as possible let people know what was happening in the land. And so some people couldn't work anymore because they needed to go out and preach, all manner of details, but what we need to know is it was this practical decision that, that we want the gospel to be spread, so we're going to do what we need to do, pragmatically speaking, to make sure word gets out. And I should also say that this was a logical step. I mean, you can start to look at the Bible and turn little texts into these logical formulas. Like the first thing we do is pray, and then we figure out the active embodied response to what we've just figured out. But it's so much more natural than that. I mean, if you think of yourself in a building that you've just discovered and come to believe with all certainty is on fire, you don't think, okay, well now how do I translate that into an embodied active response? You just get out of the building. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. When the Holy Spirit begins to give you confidence in the things that you believe, you, you naturally start to release yourself to the appropriate, practical, everyday response in your life. And that's what the apostles were doing. And you know, I love that Luke gives us this part of the story right after we've had this very head-faith-focused text in, in front of it because it makes sure that we don't read that and then walk away thinking that all I have to do is just know the truth, speak the truth, pray the truth. I actually do have to do the truth. But for some of you, that's the hardest part because you love digging into the scriptures and finding truth, and you love praying and speaking about Jesus, that actually comes quite natural to you. You've been doing that for a long time. And going to loft, best part of your week. Going to worship, it's, it's an incredibly heartening, easy for, thing for you to do. And if that's who you are, then I say bless you, because the church needs people like you. That's not natural for everyone. But if that is who you are, then you need to make sure that you don't miss what the apostles are saying. Because the deal is, is you could miss out on what's one of the most exciting, life-altering gifts of being a member of the body of Christ. I can speak openly about this and firsthand. Um, a year and a half ago, Nate and I bought our first home. And we picked it in part for the extra basement living space, um, thinking, well, we'll be able to rent it out and bring in a little bit of extra income, and then we'll also be able to be generous from time to time with it. And, and so far, it's been going pretty well. Last year, we rented it out, brought in some extra income, and then it was empty at the beginning of this year. And we were thinking we might keep it that way. We had a baby coming. We didn't want to mess with things too much. We wanted to keep things kind of organized and orderly. We don't do that very well normally. Um, and right about the time we'd settled on that, we found out that Kirsten and Rob Vandergeese and Rietzma, I know a number of you are taking a class from them, needed a place to stay. They already own a home in Three Rivers, but they teach here and work here during the week. And they're some of those people who've been very open and released with their possessions, putting almost everything they have into making sure that the message of the gospel is explored um, and considered. Uh, they they um, 
just bought a building in Three Rivers where they're gonna work on looking at how cultural engagement and the kingdom mesh. They, um, what else? They've got a store that sells fair trade goods in Three Rivers. So they're doing this gospel and they're throwing everything they, they've got into it, but they need this place to stay. And we've got this space and we think, great. So we agree to have them. And then we start trying to figure out the nitty gritty details. Like how much are they gonna pay us? And I start doing these calculatings, like, okay, well, if two people are living four nights a week in our place, and they open the refrigerator door X times, and this many loads of laundry, that many flushes, and as I did it, making sure, trying to make sure that I didn't get um, the, the short end of the stick, because, I mean, Nate and I are working on, on extending the message of the gospel, too, and we have to make sure that we take care of ourselves. My heart just got tinier and more clenched and more small, and I lost sight entirely of the reason we had the space in the first place. And all I can say is I was starting to look pretty ugly. Like if you knew me close up, like if you were Nate, my husband, you knew things were getting pretty gross. And right about then, I get assigned this Acts text, and I have to read it over and over again. And all I can say is that things go from this picture inside to slowly opening up as I start to realize these are my people. This is the story out of which I come. This early Acts church that was sharing their possessions freely and, and getting a move on about the gospel, those are my people. That's the story out of which I come. And this God, he actually owns the land underneath which my house sits. And it started to get exciting. I started thinking, I want to be a part of that kind of movement. It, it's not about making sure everything's fair. It's about making sure that the VGRs, that's their nickname, and sometimes we call them our trolls too because they live beneath, <laughs> that, that the VGRs and us pool our resources so that we have enough to go out and do everything we do. And I can say that beyond it being practical and pragmatic, and I have to tell you that everybody's one in this scenario. I mean, they pick up Miriam when I'm working on my sermon. We do grocery shopping together. We cook. Our meals are, are shared. It's a lot more fun and rich. I mean, the conversation is great, and, and there's just a lot more texture and fullness and joy in our house at 300 Culkins. And it's not something that's the normal, this is the way families live, but it's better. And it's helping us keep going as we work to have the gospel uh, extended around us in our everyday lives. So opening yourselves to this graceful movement of the Holy Spirit. And I hope you can hear that this wasn't like God prying my fingers off my stuff. This was this joyful thing that happens as I came into an understanding of what the gospel was. This kind of graceful movement happens as, as you enter in more fully to the story of God found in his word. Just in case everybody in the room isn't already slightly uncomfortable because those of you who've been living out of your head need to live out of your bodies and those of you who've been living out of your bodies need to start thinking about your faith a little bit more. Um, I want to make sure everybody feels awkward. So we're going to talk about politics. Um, because as practical of a decision as it was, don't, don't be too worried. <laughs> as practical as it was for the, for the apostles to take their goods and sell them and share the resources among the community, it was also an entirely political move on their part. Because no one in first century Palestine would have missed the fact that what they were doing was taking their money and putting it where their mouths were. Their land was their power, and they took it 
They turned it into resources, and the proceeds went not to Caesar and not to the religious authorities, but to, in the words of Mary, this dead guy who raises from the dead and then ascends into heaven. They're saying, our money is on him. Literally, we're going to let our money talk. And you know that this is true because somebody asks you out to dinner and you're interested, but you're not sure what their intentions are, right? And the whole time it's seeming like it's going pretty well, but when do you know what their intentions are? When the check comes, right? And then it's entirely evident where their heart is. And that's the deal. When they gave their money to the apostles and laid it at their feet, it was a symbolic sign saying, this is the guy we want to win. This is the one we want to have rule over the land, over the ends of the earth. But normally, if a king started talking this way, saying, I own it all, all the lands are going to be mine, all of the all of the cosmos are going to be my inheritance, we would start getting nervous. I mean, we would start thinking in terms of despotism or tyranny or Hitler. Unless the king is as good as Jesus says he is. A few years ago, I was living in Argentina, and what were the most memorable three hours of that time, uh, I was was visiting a community, an indigenous community of Guarani people, who are the, descend- the descendants of the people in the movie The Mission, and I know a number of you have been watching it in your DCM, seeing a lot of nods. This Guarani village remains virtually untouched by Western modernization. And they have a king, and this king rules over the few hundred people uh, in the village. What's unique about this king is that he is judged based on how well the poorest member of the community is doing. And the poorest member of the community is him. So he has, by law of this community, the smallest house. And he has the last cut of meat when they hunt and kill an animal. And he has the worst cut of meat. Children, elderly, and sick, go first when it comes to eating. This kind of king in this community is always chosen on his passion for wanting the entire human community to flourish in every sense of the word. That kind of kingship gives us a glimpse, I mean just a sliver of a peak into the way Jesus intends to reign in his kingdom here on earth. And so what takes a turn and allows this text to become one layer even richer, we see that the decision to pool their resources was not only a practical step, and it wasn't only a political step, but it was also this enacting step where they said, well, we're not only gonna back this guy with our money, we're gonna start acting like he's already what he is, which is king of the land. And so we're going to start doing things the way this king would want it. And the way this king would want it is that everybody has enough, that no one has a need. So that's the third reason why they've decided to pool their resources among them. It's because they have gotten the message of the gospel. So let me be clear, I'm not talking Democrat, and I'm not talking Republican, 
But I am saying that King Jesus cares about how his children are doing in the land, which means he cares about their health, he cares about their food, he cares about their education, about their water supply, and about their heat and their electricity. He cares about the everyday needs of his children because he wants all of his children to flourish, and not just in those basics. He wants them, he wants them to have this space around them where they can do the things that their hearts long to do, where they can be creative with their their hands and their minds and use their bodies well for excellent things. This is the kind of kingdom that we are asked and invited to join in on. And it's not this burdensome thing. I don't want you to leave here and go back to your room and journal all by yourself asking God what's the next thing he wants you to give up. I want you to gather around tables with your friends, with your families, with whoever you live in community with, and start dreaming about what it means that Jesus is king and has authority over everything that you can see and even beyond. And start thinking about the fact that as you know these things, I guess not even thinking about the fact, get ready for the fact that as you understand and know and speak this story boldly, the Holy Spirit, not you, is going to begin to unclench your heart and open you up so that in your everyday lives, you can begin to experience the Holy Spirit move and move in you in movement that cannot and will not stop until it has been taken to completion. Brothers and sisters, I speak to you in the name of the one true and living God. Amen.